open us up in a word of prayer. I feel, um, I get emotional every time I watch stories of givers. So I just feel like let's just give gratitude to the Lord and ask that he'll speak to us in a way that only he can. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful. We just, um, every single testimony that's ever shared, ever, uh, every um, transformation that ever happens in a human heart, God, we know is because of you. And so we just give you all the praise and all the glory for people in our churches, even, even people in this room, every single pastor family that's represented here, God, just that you are the one who transforms our hearts. And God, may we continually be more like you. Would you give us insights from your word this morning and beyond that will transform the way we give, it will transform the way we live, transform the way we teach um, your word about generosity, God. It is such a privilege um, to get to share your word to those that will hear it. And so God, we just, we just ask that you would speak to us each uniquely um, in a way that only you can. It's in your name we ask these things, amen. Well, back when I was in uh, college, and I went to Wheaton College. I don't know, do we have any Wheaties in the room? Wheaton College? No. Okay, that's all right. It's in Chicago. It's a Christian liberal arts college in Chicago, and it was about my sophomore year. Now, some of you might be able to relate to this. There was a young gentleman I was dating at the time, no one near as wonderful as my, as my husband, um, but I was going over to his family's house uh, for the first time. So maybe some of you remember when you went to your in-law's house to have dinner for the very first time, you might be slightly nervous, you know, especially if, uh, you know, his mother or her mother is cooking and, uh, you know, you've got to eat everything on your plate. Well. Most meals are served in one of two ways. They're either served um, buffet style, where you go through the kitchen island and you pick what you want, kind of like we did last night, or they are served family style, where you're sitting at a round table and you've got, again, you still get to pick your portions. Both of those scenarios I love because I know I'm in control of what I put on my plate and therefore I can clean it and not insult the person who's made it. Well, this meal that we had was served in either of those two ways. Uh, some of you, like I think Matt and Tina know this, uh, you have to do some rationing in your home. And so, uh, you know, you've got, uh, you pre-portion your, your food. And so this particular uh, gentleman, his family, it was an eight-member family, so not a little smaller than, uh, than the Wilsons, eight-member family. And so everything was pre-decided on our plate. So we had a chicken breast. There was a bowl of salad. There's a bowl of baked beans. There's some green beans. There's a dinner roll. And I'm looking at all this, and I mean, I love carbs, and I love sweets, I, I do eat some veggies, um, I married a beef cattle rancher, go figure, I don't eat a lot of meat though, I, I try to now, but I'm looking at this huge uh, chicken breast, I'm looking at this bowl of baked beans, I'm like, I, I don't even like baked beans, like, I know that's where I need to get started. So I'm eating the chicken breast, I go over here to the baked beans, I'm doing pretty good, making some good progress on those, I go back to the green beans, a little bit of the salad, over to the chicken breast. I'm just about done with this bowl of baked beans and feeling extremely proud of myself. And the gentleman's father of this eight member family, real just kind of gruff gentleman, he was an attorney in town. No, no offense, we may have an attorney or two or maybe former attorney or two in here, no offense. He was kind of a gruff attorney in town. He said, were you gonna leave any for us? Apparently, I had consumed the entire eight-member family's bowl of beans. I'll just say it was an interesting night for a couple of reasons, and I'll just leave it right there. I, 
I share that story with you. It's 100% true. Um, I think his father even still tells it to this day, as I clearly still do also. Um, but I share that with you because it illustrates a point about generosity that I want to start off our time with today. Sometimes, well, I'll just even say that night, I was so concerned with my own place setting that I, not one time, did I look out to see that no one else's place setting had a massive bowl of baked beans to the left of their, of their plate. Had I done that, I may not have embarrassed myself. I think this topic of generosity, it's kind of like politics or it's kind of like um, how much money you make. It's things that you just, you don't talk about a lot. And this topic of generosity, sometimes we are like this and it gets even even some of you right now now this is a room full of pastors so i you know some of you might be very comfortable talking about this subject others of you even right now you're thinking oh my stomach's getting a little bit tight this is a topic i'm not familiar you're not comfortable with and certainly our people are sometimes like that as well when the lord actually has so much more for us if we will just look across the place setting at what he's doing in other people's lives and there's ways to do that that are God-glorifying, God-honoring, and we see them all throughout Scripture because giving isn't private, private at all. In fact, it's incredibly communal. So this morning, I'm going to take a look at seven passages of Scripture, seven different principles, and I'm going to kind of illustrate it with a truth or with a myth and a truth. And I hope this morning that the Lord would impart to us some new wisdom as it relates to how we um, teach giving, even to our people, how we disciple our people in giving. But possibly, as he often does, maybe he'd even have a challenge for us personally today as well. How does that sound? And I'm going to ask my wonderful husband, can I have a little bit of that water? That'd be amazing. Thank you so much. So the first that we're going to take a look at is actually out of Ephesians chapter 3. Thank you, sweetheart. Thank you very, very much. Mm. Ephesians chapter 3 is Paul, Paul's writing this letter to the church at Ephesus. And this is kind of one of his final prayers for them. Everyone in the room likely could say this by heart. In fact, you maybe even have used it as a tagline for a capital campaign or two. It's a really wonderful prayer that Paul has for, uh, for, for the Ephesian church. And I'm actually going to uh, read it to us right now. And I bet we could all even say it together. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ, to know that this love surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him... Who is able to do immeasurably more? I love it. I see so many of you reciting this. Measurably more, more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that has worked within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What a wonderful prayer that is. What an empowering prayer that is. And we think, okay, now what, does, what, what might Paul try to be communicating to us? I think what he's communicating is the value of expectation. You know, a lot of times we don't expect things from God. We, we will limit God and we will limit the people of God. And so the first myth that I want to share with us today is not everyone is capable of generosity. So I need to expect accordingly. 
Now, I hope I don't convict anyone in here because I've certainly been guilty of this myself, um, but sometimes even when we receive the offering, we say things such as, now if you're new around here at ABC Church, I don't want you to feel compelled to give. I just want you to go ahead and let that bag pass you by, let that plate pass you by, or don't visit the box in the back if you're new here, and you know, just, I don't, I don't want you to worry about that. Now, what we are saying though in that moment is, if you are here, I do want you to feel obligated to give. I do want you to feel, you know, and, and, and sometimes when we're communicating, trying to expect less of the people that might be visiting, what we're actually doing is we are possibly putting to shame the move in the Lord's life that's actually happening in the people that are getting ready to give. What does it look like instead to say, you know, if you're new around here at ABC Church, let me tell you what we believe about giving. We believe that we get to give, we don't have to give. Giving is a journey, it's a joyful journey. And every time when we gather together, we give as a part of our worship. Now, whether you pass that bag or put a box in the back, every moment when we gather, we believe that we give cheerfully and joyfully and we continue to grow in our giving. And so we just wanna invite you, whenever you're ready, would you join us on that journey? Whenever you're ready. And for those of you who've been on this journey for a while, this is our opportunity maybe to grow in that journey. This is our opportunity to have a new insight from the Lord in that journey. And so we are going to celebrate this time together of receiving our offering. How much better does that feel for both sides? Because I'll tell you, when I'm an existing giver and I hear a pastor say, I just want you to let that bag pass you by if you're new. I don't want you to feel compelled or obligated to give. But all the rest of you, I do want you to feel obligated to give. This principle of expectation, it's incredible how, what would it look like if I were to say at ABC Church last week, do you know we had 41 first-time givers? Can we just give praise to the Lord for the 41 first-time givers we had? And you know what? I just want to invite you. Today could be your day. You could be like those 41. Maybe you've been sitting around here a long time. Maybe you've been sitting around here just a few weeks. Maybe it's your first day. But I just want to invite you, when you're ready, would you take that step like those 41? The truth really is believe in the power of all. 100% engagement. Everybody who's a part of your church has the capability, the capacity to be able to give. God gives all of us a full measure of his spirit. We should never judge someone for socioeconomic um, situation. We should also never judge them for spiritual maturity. The Lord often brings people into generosity, sometimes even before they know him fully. And Matthew 6, 19 goes both ways. Where your treasure is, there is your heart. It does not say which one comes first. And so for some people, they are brought into deeper communion with God when that bond that money holds on them is broken. So pastor, I wanna encourage you this Sunday, this Saturday night, this Thursday night, this Friday night, whenever you are preaching, would you boldly invite 100% of the people that are within the sound of your voice to join you on that journey of generosity? Second principle, principle of first. This is one of my favorites. Colossians 1 is a really interesting book of the Bible because the Apostle Paul is actually refuting heresies. Many, many of you know this. This is a, a room full of theologically astute people, no, no doubt. And the Apostle Paul, this was written, uh, this letter that most scholars think was written about 90 AD. So this was happening at a time when there was a little bit of the telephone game going on. So not everyone had uh, physically witnessed Jesus. In fact, many people had not. And so there was a lot of heresy where people were saying, Jesus is merely a way, he's not the way to the Father. 
There was other heresy going on where people were saying um, you only had to ascertain a certain level of knowledge to get into the kingdom of heaven. It had nothing to do with surrendering your life to the Lordship of Christ. And so Colossians chapter 1, this book, this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae is refuting those heresies. And so we get some of the best theology of Jesus in this first chapter. And many of you know this, this is the preeminence of Christ. And I'm going to read chapter 1 beginning with verse 15, such a powerful passage of the position that Christ should have in our life. The Son is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones, powers, rulers, or authorities, all things have been created through him. They've been created for him. He's before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether those were things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross, the gospel. Now here's the thing, very, very, very few of us actually give in a way where we would say all things are by him, to him, through him, and for him. If we're really honest, for many people, all things are by our house, to our house, through our house, and for our house. Or by our kids, to our kids, through our kids, and for our kids. And what Paul is saying in this theology of first is that there is no higher firstness than Christ. That he truly is before all things. All things have been reconciled through him, through the gospel. And that all things should be by him, through him, to him, and for him. Now let me just put this into perspective so it's very possible if you've ever sat at the closing table of your house, or maybe this was your friend of a friend, okay? You're sitting at the closing table of your house. If any of you have ever said to your spouse or maybe to a friend, you know, honey, we can buy this house. But if we do, some things are gonna have to change. Have you ever said that? Or we can buy this car, we can buy this vehicle. Now, if we buy this vehicle, some things are gonna have to change. Or possibly, you know, we can send this kid to this college, we can do that. But if we make that decision, some things are gonna have to change. My brother, who's five years younger than me, always jokes that when my parents sent me to Wheaton, they started eating big ketchup. And uh, there was a lot of changes happening when, uh, some of you know what that's like. Yes, generic big ketchup, which I, it's delicious actually, but the economy size. I say this to say, if you've ever said that statement in your life, some things are gonna have to change. That thing that you just put was first. It just became a driver. And some of you know people, again, it's, it's presumably maybe no one in this room, but there are people in our church, they're not able to maybe go out to eat as much, they're not able to give as much, they're not able to save as much, because they're being driven by a decision that they made, maybe their house, maybe something in their past, that's actually first. See, first, it's a myth that first means it's the first auto draft out of my account, or it's the first check I write each month. That means first in order. What Paul is talking about, he's talking about first in priority. And first in priority is completely different. It's saying, if everything goes south, who gets paid first? And for most people, it's their house. For most people, it's not God. If things go south, 
Does your, does your house payment go down? Not unless you refinance. If things go south and your income goes down, does your cell phone payment go down? Not unless you get a smaller plan. But if things go south and things get, your income goes down, does your giving change? Does it even, is it even still in the picture? See, our giving might be something first in order, but to truly be first in priority would say, okay, honey, we can make that decision to give that much, just like you would have with your house, just like you would have with your kids. We can make that decision to give that much. But if we do, some things are gonna have to change. And that's exactly what God wants. That's the heart of Christ transforming you is when your giving is driving your spending and your saving. And for most people, they approach a season of giving and say, how much can I afford to give? What they're not saying is based on everything I'm already committed to. And our giving should be something that when we see Christ through our giving, all things are by it, to it, through it, and for it. So much so that it affects everything else in our life. The truth is the way in which I give should be so first that it drives everything else. I give not just in order, but I give first in priority. Amen. I put Genesis 4 up there too. Many of you know this passage. I'll mention it briefly. Before Cain killed Abel, there was a giving story. Some of you know this. Abel, he tended livestock, and Cain tended the fields. And the Lord rejected Cain's gift and looked with favor upon Abel's. Why? Because Abel gave the first and the fattest of his livestock before he knew if they were going to get diseased, before he knew if they were going to get stolen. He said, I'm going to commit, not knowing the rest of the things are going to be driven by what I give, where Cain, by contrast, waited. He's a December giver. Now, let's be honest for a second. If we rejected our December givers, we might not have a church. So it's good that we are not the Lord. And some people are giving first in December. We, 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 it's not our place to judge. But let me say this. Cain waited, it says, over the course of time until the harvest had been produced. Cain waited and it says he gave the Lord some. Now, we don't know that some actually could have been a larger amount than Abel. We don't know that. It could have been a larger percentage. We don't know that. What do we know is that the priority was different. Cain gave the leftovers. He waited to see how much he had. And then he gave in December of the harvest. Whereas Abel said, Lord, I don't know if these flocks are going to get diseased. I don't know if they're going to get stolen. I am giving first to you because you are my priority. Amen. Principle of engagement. You know this passage. I bet some of you could quote it. This is the church at Macedonia. Somebody shout out to me, what was the characteristic of the church of Macedonia? What was the characteristic of them? They were characterized by their generosity. And why was their generosity so remarkable? That's right. That's exactly right. They were in extreme poverty. And so what's so incredible, all the way from the back, thank you for that. What's so incredible is that the way that they gave is something that actually engaged other people. And here's what's so fascinating. I spoke even as we talked about the silly story about the baked beans. We often think that our givings should be so private when we don't see any examples in scripture of that at all, except one. Do not let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. How many people in your church have maybe quoted this to you after you preached about giving? Now, now, pastor, I don't think we should be sharing these stories. That video we just saw, I don't think we need to be letting the left hand know what the right hand is doing. Some of you in here may even feel like telling me that. I don't know if we should be doing that. Now, many of you know 
the right hand, not letting the right hand know what the left hand is doing, also is right next to a passage that says what? When you pray, pray in secret. We violate that all the time. We violated it about five times this morning. Now, what is that passage about? It's about motivations. If you have impure motivations and you're driven by the approval of men, then when you pray, you better pray in secret. If you have impure motivations and you are driven by the approval of men, then when you give, you better not let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. But we can presume in most cases, again, you know your own heart, that hopefully we're not giving for the approval of men. We are giving to glorify God. And so, you know what? In every other passage of Scripture, Old Testament and New, giving is incredibly public. In the Old Testament, they even listed out amounts, which would challenge our Western private culture a little bit too much. But in the New Testament, we see stories like we, like we have here in 2 Corinthians 8. And here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says this, Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God gave the Macedonian churches in the midst of a very severe trial. Their overflowing joy, their extreme poverty, welled up in rich generosity. For I testify they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of giving, the privilege of sharing in the service of the Lord's people. They exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, this is really important, they gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then they gave themselves to us. And then it says, so we urge Titus, as he had earlier made, to bring the completion this act of grace, so for asked him to give that offering. And then Paul finishes with this, but since you, he's talking to the church at Corinth about the church at Macedonia, he's telling them a giving story. Since you, church at Corinth, excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also, just as the Macedonians, excel in this grace of giving. See, giving is incredibly communal. We see examples all through scripture of what it looks like. And pastors, I wanna encourage you. How do we, just like this morning on that video piece, how do we share more stories of the Lord's active work in people's lives? And by the way, how do we share more stories of his active work in your life? How do we see and demonstrate that the Lord is still powerful and changing the way that we live and give and it's not a box that we check on a tithe payroll deduction form? Whew, sorry. Principle of leadership. Let's go right into that one. First Chronicles 29. So this is a passage where David was building the temple. This is one of the very first uh, capital campaigns, you could say, for many of us. This was the time many of you just, uh, a lot of people in this room actually just went into your first facility uh, recently. Uh, thanks to incredible, incredible blessing of uh, Solomon Foundation allows many, uh, many of us here in this room to be able to do things uh, in miraculous ways. And this was an opportunity where David... In fact, my friend Chad Goucher was reminding me this morning that uh, didn't David preach this message and when he was receiving funds for the temple, David shared what he was giving. The kings, the priests, the leaders of the tribes of Israel shared what they gave and then the rest of the people were inspired by their giving. They, they raised all this money for the temple and then Chad said, and then David died. And uh, Chad, many of you know Chad and uh, Melissa are riding an incredible wave right now down in uh, Goodyear, Arizona, where the Lord is, uh, is really blessing them. And uh, I'm sure sometimes many of you in the room can relate. You've just been uh, raising funds for, uh, for these incredible temples of the Lord. And uh, 
you probably feel like a David at the end, and then, uh, and, and then you, uh, hopefully, uh, d- that, does not, um, that does not happen, but I appreciate Jad, Chad's uh, jovial, jovial comment, Chad, that you had. So here's what David is saying. Verse 9, I'm not going to read the whole passage to us, but verse 9 of, uh, of 1 Chronicles 29 says this. The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. Here's what this passage does not say. The people rejoiced at the exorbitant amount of their leaders. The people rejoiced at the amazing percentage of their leaders because they had triple tithed. That's not what that passage says. It says the people had rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. The principle of leadership in this chapter is incredible. Oftentimes we think that sharing stories of generosity from staff and leaders is not going to be inspiring because we want to we share lay leaders. It'll be more authentic. David illustrates for us that when a pastor or a leader like himself or the kings and the, tri- the priests of the tribes of Israel, when you share with a willing heart, when you share freely with an open spirit, when you share vulnerably, and you're showing that that Holy Spirit's work is active in your life and you're not checking a box, that's one of the most incredibly powerful stories you can share. Because many people, and I'll even just say from personal experience staff that I used to be a part of, many times we well-meaningly expect our staff to tithe. And by the way, praise God for that discipline. That's not an easy discipline. It's a discipline that's very important. But when we expect our people, our leading staff and pastors only to tithe, and yet we're expecting the rest of our people to grow in their generosity, what does that say about the Holy Spirit's active work in our lives? Instead, what does it look like to expect our staff as they share and expect ourselves that we are constantly growing in our giving? And what does it look like for our giving stories to be shared in a way where people see our willing hearts, our free spirit, our wholehearted nature in giving to the Lord, and that that's not something that is just easy for us, but it's something that, that wells up in rich generosity. It's something that they can see that we're being challenged by and that we model instead not a rival, but we model the fact that we're still in progress as leaders. The Apostle Paul says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. What does that mean? That means there's not a single one of us in this room that has learned everything that, the God, that God has taught us in terms of generosity. That when you share your story, if you've been challenged in a certain way, that it challenges other leaders and staff in your church. Principle of multiplication, this is one of my favorites. If we go a little bit further in the passage on uh, Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, a minute ago we were reading chapter eight when he spoke about the church at Macedonia. In chapter 9 is where we get this famous passage, um, and it's not, it's not the one on the screen, but it's the one right before. In fact, I've got a, an offering plate in my office from uh, Pastor Joby Martin uh, down in Florida at the Church of 1122. They don't pass, pass a plate. I won't do a show of hands. I know it's kind of a hot topic of who passes plates and bags and, and who puts boxes in the back, and I'll give you my opinions on that later. But uh, he gave me an offering plate one time because they, they, uh, they do not pass offering plates. It says 2 Corinthians 9, 7. 
for uh, we should, Paul, uh, we are not called to give uh, out of compulsion, but to give freely. Now, I think many times when we pass things, uh, we're not looking to compel, uh, to compel anyone in an unhealthy way, uh, whatever that may look like. But Paul is speaking here every time when Paul was gathering resources, he always took time to teach. And this is so compelling because a lot of times as pastors, we think, can't we just teach about giving without asking for it? Wouldn't that be nice? Can we just pour into people the teachings of God and not ask for anything back? Well, the funny thing is the Apostle Paul never did that. When the Apostle Paul was on his missionary journeys and he was building up the local church, building up the early church, all of the time he was receiving offerings. But he did not just receive those offerings. Every time he did that, he always took time to teach. He wanted the people who were doing the giving to know what it was that should be going on in their hearts at that time. And so I want to read to you actually from 2 Corinthians 9. This is beginning in verse 10. So this is right after Paul talks about not to give under compulsion. He says, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and he'll enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. By the way, does he say there, you can be enriched in every way so that you can feel more secure about your future? Not what he says. You will be enriched in every way so that you can feel more accomplished? Not what he says. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And then through us, your generosity is actually going to result in thanksgiving to God. He goes on to say, this service that you perform, this generosity that you're doing, it's not just paying for ministry to happen. He's saying it's not just supplying the needs of the Lord's people. This is so important. He said it's actually overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of this generosity, others will praise God when they see it accompanied by your obedience of your confession of the gospel. Now, this is really important. Paul is saying generosity doesn't just fund the mission. It actually is the mission. He's saying our giving doesn't just pay for something. If, if it was, I don't know about you, but there's a few baptisms I would buy right now. Can I hear an amen? If, if our giving could buy baptisms, by the way, we got to be real careful whenever we say, because you gave, 500 people were baptized. That's just not true. That's just bad theology. Because those people were baptized, those people are baptized because people discipled them. The Lord never promises us an ROI for our giving. Charity Water can, World Vision can, Compassion can, the local church is totally different. What Paul is saying is you're not just funding ministry to happen. What's happening when you give, if it is accompanied by your confession of the gospel of Christ, it not just for philanthropy's sake, not just out of obligation. If you give out of your confession of the gospel of Christ, others see that, they praise God for it, and it overflows in expressions of thanks to God. It's evangelism. Generosity doesn't just pay for ministry to happen. It actually is ministry when you give out of your confession of the gospel of Christ. Paul goes on to say, in them there are prayers for you. Their hearts will go out for you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. It's not even because of you that you're doing it. It's because of God's grace. And then he says, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. See, here's the thing. A lot of times we think as soon as I get into a better situation, then I will give. 
As soon, as soon as I send the kids off to college, as soon as we pay for that, as soon as I get out of debt, as soon, let's, you know, as soon as this, as soon as this, the truth is we have been enriched in every way so that we can be generous on every occasion. And let us all just ask ourselves this convicting question. If you were God, would you give you more money? <laughs> let it soak in because if we have been enriched in every way, to be generous on every occasion, then what are you doing with what the Lord has given you and why would he give you more of it? This principle of multiplication we see all over scripture. We see it in John 6 with the, with the boy with his lunch. We see it in so many ways that, that Paul says, he who supplies seed to the sower bread for food, for food, he will supply and increase your store of seed. But do we trust him? Do we trust him? Principle of surrender. Luke 18. Somebody tell me, what is Luke 18? I didn't mean for it to be a Bible class, but every once in a while it's not a bad thing. Luke 18. Anybody know what is happening in Luke 18? Luke is the great, um, he is one of the uh, most interesting, clearest writers because he was a what? What's Luke's profession? He's a physician. That's right. So while physicians don't write very well, handwriting, they do speak very well. So I hope I'm not offending any physicians in the room. It's a, you know, uh, characteristic. But what, the, the, what the, uh, the gospel of Luke, he is being so clear about a lot of Jesus's uh, parables. And in this particular parable, this is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. What's interesting, and I don't want to mess with a lot of Thai theology today, not, that'll be for another time in a, in a private place when we can talk one-to-one. -one. Jerry Harris knows that. But what I will say here is that this is one of the few times in the New Testament where tithing is mentioned. And Jesus is talking about it in a very specific way. Now, many of us know this. This is the passage where you've got the Pharisee, and he says this. He's talking about his outputs. He says, I fast twice a week and I get a tenth of all I get. So I'm good, Jesus, right? Just so you know, check the box, check the box. My payroll deduction is complete. I also fasted twice last week. I am good to go. The tax collector, by contrast, says, Lord, have, have mercy on me. Like, I, I, don't, I don't have those outputs. I'm not even going to try to pretend to have those outputs, but would you have mercy on me? I desire to. And, the, and, and Jesus says this, that man, the tax collector, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus is saying here, as he does in many parables about the Pharisees, he is not interested in an output void of an input. He's not interested in outward motions void of an inward heart. And I want to encourage us, even in our best efforts sometimes, to ask people to do something whether that doing something is tithing, whether that doing something is triple tithing, whether that doing something is giving a certain amount, that if we have not led them in the grace of God, of the why behind why they would ever want to do that, the actual motion of the tax collector in that passage is one of surrender. He says, Lord, have mercy on me. It says he even beat his, beat his breast. It was a sign of surrender. I don't have those outputs, but, but, but would you give them to me? See, Jesus is far less concerned with what you are giving. He is far more concerned with what you're not giving and why. The principle of surrender says, the myth of the principle of surrender says, hey, as long as I keep kind of growing in my amount or in my percentage of giving, as long as my output continues to grow, I'm good. 
Jesus actually says God's less concerned with what we are giving. He is more concerned with what we're not giving and why. Is your giving, is it, is it actually changing and transforming you? Or has it become comfortable and routine? If surrender means all, you know, you've heard pastors say, Jesus didn't tithe his blood. Some of us, some of us have said that in here, right? He didn't. He gave it all. Now, what's so important about that is that we often act like, well, we get to live on 90%. Now, again, I promised, I promised several of you, I will not go into some Thai theology here, but here's what is very clear. God owns everything, right? None of us can dispute that. God owns everything. If that's true, it might not be that we're supposed to give him everything, but it sure is that we're supposed to honor him with everything. And so what does it look like for you to be fully surrendered where you're never complacent, you're never content to say, I've checked my box, I am triple tithing, I'm giving, I'm giving three times what I gave last year, God is far less concerned with that. It might just be a product of your situation. You might just be making more money and have less expenses. What does it look like for your heart to be changing, for your giving to be something that is changing you more into the image of Christ? Last one, principle of eternal perspective. So what's interesting is, uh, you know, Paul in the first Timothy six, which is where we're gonna look in here, Paul was apprenticing Timothy. Now, I'm, I know many of us in here, we have maybe somebody we are apprenticing or somebody who poured into us, we were their apprentice. What I love about Paul's letter to Timothy is that he was giving him so many instructions about how to teach in the early church. Because as many of us know, when you are discipling an apprentice, you want to be very clear. And so in 1 Timothy 6, he's actually talking about the, the power of wealth the power of money and the power sometimes it can have over us. And what the powerful thing is here in this is he's not saying that having wealth is bad. I think there's a myth that says wealth is bad and having too much means that you're not being generous. Now, hopefully we know in this room that that's not what the Apostle Paul was saying at all. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, do not put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. That's exactly what he says in this passage. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to put their hope in wealth, not to not have wealth, but to not put your hope in it, which is so uncertain, but to put your hope in God who richly provides all things for our enjoyment. In this, you lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You take care of, you take hold of the life that is truly life. See, wealth, it is a tool. We are to use it at any level, wealth at any level to the glory of God. And here's the powerful thing. The question isn't, are you giving to God 100%? Because I'll tell you this, there was only a few people in scripture that were asked to do that. Rich young ruler, and he could not do it. He was asked to do it because of a heart issue. And then we see someone else that we can presume she was, she was asked to give it all because Jesus stopped the worship service to make sure everybody saw. And that was the woman with the two coins. But God has not given a bold declaration to all of us to give him 100%. But you know what he has said is that he owns everything. We are merely managers. We are merely stewards. And so what does it look like to honor God with 100%? See, there is nothing wrong with having a large home. There's nothing wrong with having a home and there's not even anything wrong with having a large home. The question is, are you honoring God in your home? And if the answer is yes, and you've got church planners staying in your basement, or maybe if you're really generous, your church planners are in your master bedroom and you're in the basement, that's revolutionary. 
Or it's possible that you have life groups over every night of the week, you're having the student ministry in your house. And so even if you have a large house, if it's a tool for the Lord, don't sell your house and give it to the church. Your house is already being used for the kingdom. But if you really are honest, there's some of us, maybe you would say, you know what? I used to honor God with my house. I did, there was a season, but now the kids are in college. Or now, you know, we live on a different side of town and we don't have community group savers often. And if you really get convicted and you say, I'm not honoring God with my house, you got two choices. You can either redeem that house and you start honoring God with your house, or you release that house and you get in a house you can honor God in. Because God's not asking us to give him 100%. An eternal perspective said, God is asking us to honor him with 100%. And that goes for anything. I grew up in an era, some, or I grew up, uh, my father grew up in an era where if you didn't hang on to everything you had, you might not have anything tomorrow. Some of you maybe either grew up in a family like that or you know maybe what that looks like. And so in our household, that's how I grew up. And I was taught to save 50% of every dollar. Now that is not what the ABCs of financial freedom tells you to do. That is not even in the Bible. That is just my dad. And it's bad theology, by the way. And the, the, the theology of that, even since then, we've both been broken of. But for years, until I was about 24 years old, I started babysitting at 13. And, and uh, when I was passed out of college at 24, all the time I was striving to save as my first fruit. And in fact, I remember distinctively calling my dad in college and saying, Dad, did you see, did you see my savings account? And I just I had a very tiny $8 an hour job, nothing impressive. But did you see that? Did you see what, did you see what I saved? And for years, there's people, there are people in our churches, they're not stunted by their giving, by being a big spender. We've never been big spenders. We shop a lot at Walmart. We live in Walmart country. But our idol was that we didn't have an eternal perspective on our saving. Our idol that prevented us from being generous, and there are people in our churches, they don't have an issue with debt, they don't have an issue with spending. They have an idol of control because they wanna control the things of this earth and not let them go for the things of eternity. And there are people, just like when my dad and I have been broken of that, and by the way, it's something, if you grew up like that, you still fight with it. And it's not bad to save, it's healthy to save. But this Bible does not tell us a certain amount or a certain percentage to save. It tells us a perspective. It tells us not to put our hope in wealth. It tells us to put our hope in God. And so what does it look like to break the idol of control for people? What does it look like that people would give in such a way they are not stunted by either their idol of spending or their idol of saving? See, for some of us, our generosity is something that is merely an amount or a percentage. It's maybe even something we're growing in. But the Lord's wanting to expand our horizon beyond that. He's wanting our people's horizons to be expanded beyond that. And so I wanna, I wanna leave you just with this encouragement because this topic, clearly I'm very passionate about it. This topic can open up the floodgates of blessing for us. It can open up the floodgates of blessing for our churches. It can open up the floodgates of blessing for us individually. And a lot of times we just need to be broken out of the rut of amounts and percentages. We just need to be broken out of the rut of pharisaical arrival and to say, Lord, just like the tax collector, Lord, have mercy on me. Would you show me how I can look more like you in my giving? Would you help me to expect more? Would you help me to put you first? 
Would you help me to be more engaged in my giving? Would you help me to be so vulnerable and humble as a leader that the Holy Spirit's active work in my life will help those that I lead? Would you help my giving to be multiplied? Well, I never judge my situation. I never judge my amount or I percentage what I give. Lord, would you help me to be fully surrendered that I'm not just giving to you, I'm actually honoring you with 100%. And Lord, would you help me to have an eternal perspective, not an earthly one, that I see every single resource you have given me, my home, my savings account, my vehicle, my, my, my going out to eat budget, that I ask myself, am I honoring you in how I spend those things?